the greatest story ever written. This is what Charles Dickens said about the parable of the prodigal son. And he knew a thing or two about writing stories. We have lived it and we have witnessed it. It is a part of the fabric of our being. And we have heard this message many times from Luke 15. This parable is tucked in among other parables, the parables of the dishonest stewards, of the lost coins, of the rich man and the poor man Lazarus. It is a story that stays with us generation after generation because it speaks to us of the human condition, of what it means to live between the Garden of Eden and the kingdom of God, the place in which we live our lives every day. Ronald Diebler, the great American theologian, said, the whole story of human culture might be truly chronicled in the terms of the parable of the prodigal son. Fifty years ago, at Union Theological Seminary, I heard a lecture on this parable that I still remember. I cannot remember where I left my glasses most days. <laughs> but I remember the message of Dr. Bomber Kelly. The father, the loving God who welcomes us home. The prodigal son, the wayward sinner lost, but finding his way and returning home. The elder brother standing outside of the house like the Sadducees and the Pharisees to whom Jesus was addressing this parable. And at the end of his lecture, Dr. Kelly asked this question. He said, what young men and women, I was young then, young men and women, what do you think the father and the two sons did the next day? My sermon is an answer to that question. This parable falls into three chapters like all great stories of legend and myth. Joseph Campbell wrote a book, I think it's the best book written in my lifetime, called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And he talked about the three stages that we go through in life. The departure, the initiation, and return. The three chapters in this parable are the chapters about inheritance and entitlement and reconciliation. The Genesis story in Genesis 1, God creates man and woman and gives to them an inheritance. Behold, I give to you every plant, every tree, every beast, every bird, every green plant for food. That is an inheritance. And then he gave the first instructions to Adam and Eve. He said, you are now to, be, you are now to multiply and to be fruitful and to have dominion. Well, there is much social and political discourse over what it means to have dominion, 
but there is no discourse over what it means to be fruitful and to multiply. It is called the cultural mandate. For us to be fruitful and to multiply, the reality is if we did not live that mandate, human history would be less than 100 years old. We are designed to survive. Creation is beautiful, but creation is not always easy. It is not always a comfortable place. We are designed to survive, and one of the ways in which we survive is passing down an inheritance. Be fruitful. Create a surplus. About 10,000 years ago, when the first farmer took his or her crops to the market because they had more surplus than they needed for their family, the marketplace began. And in order for the farmer not to carry his or her bags of grain from one marketplace to another, they created a method of exchange. We call it money. And since that time until this time, there are very few major decisions in our lives, in our families or in our businesses, that do not involve money. Try to think of one issue going on in the world today that does not involve money. The Bible has 2,000 verses that address money or possessions. Out of the 39 parables that Jesus spoke, 11 of them are about money and possessions. Money and love, <clears throat> this surplus of life needs to be managed. And money and love, I believe, are symbiotic and emissible. They are connected, but they do not blend easily. The best predictor of how happy a marriage will be, or unhappy, is how a couple talk about money. And the work that I do now with our son Tom is with families we call of legacy and family businesses. It's the work that I've been doing since retiring, which I thought was going to be easier than it was, <laughs> from the chapel. We've written a book about this. It's called Maps for Men. It's about fathers and sons and the interrelationship that goes on between fathers and son who share work together in a family business or who have family assets that they manage together. Money and love are connected, but they are not easily managed. Often, the emotional tail wags the economic dog. Entitlement is an emotional issue. I'm not speaking about legal entitlements or government entitlements or workplace entitlements to which people have a statutory right. 
I'm speaking about the entitlement that comes with the, these two words. Give me. The words that the prodigal son said to his father. Give me. Our youth now love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect for their elders. They love chatter in place of exercise. They no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents, chatter before company, gobble up their food, and tyrannize their teachers. Socrates wrote that. The older generation, folks like myself, often think of the younger generation as being entitled, as some that they are perhaps lazy or undisciplined or selfish. My grandfather thought I was entitled. He said to me more than once, you will not amount to a handful of beans. In the good old days of the 1950s, there was entitlement. The me generation did not start a few generations ago. It has been with us a long, long time. The Bible tells us so. The narcissism that says, my way or the highway, the ungratefulness that says, you owe me something. The privilege that says, I think I'll just start at the top. The sense of being a victim, poor me. The persecutor that says, if it weren't for you, or the free rider that says, you work and carry the load, I'll play. We know the story of the parable of the, of the prodigal son because of one thing. Because there was a blunder to quote Joseph Campbell. The prodigal son went into the far country far too soon and with too much. And there was a blunder. The economists call that the tragedy of the commons. It's an old English economic theory. I have a degree in economics. Some of you don't know that. But it's an old economic theory from England. When villagers would bring their cattle to the common pasture for the day. Boston commons, sometimes referred to as the commons mistakenly, for 200 years was used. It was the first public park in the United States and for 200 years it was used as a place where the villagers would bring their milk cows in the morning and put them on the pasture, and in the evening they would take them home and bring them back the next day. It lasted for 200 years until one, time, one day, I think his name was Tony, Tony said, I'm going to put an extra cow on that pasture. And they started overgrazing the pasture. And it was closed down because of overgrazing. That is what happens when we don't take care of the commons in our lives. 
This chapel, this community, this country is here because our ancestors, our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents took care of the commons. When the prodigal son said to his father, give me the share of property that falls to me, he was actually making a statement of autonomy and of independence, something that we hope all of our children do at some time in their life. He just received too much too soon. But the reason that we remember this story is because of the blame. If this son had taken his inheritance and gone off to Harvard Business School or started a dot-com company or had bought a McDonald's franchise, we would have never heard this story. We hear this story and it lives generation after generation because of the blunder. The blunder is the value, the price that was paid for reconciliation. Reconciliation, it's the, it's the Easter message. I'm sure Robert is speaking about that. Reconciliation, redemption, comes with a price. Reconciliation, redemption is the key to the door of the kingdom. The Father's grace opened the door for reconciliation. Our Father who art in heaven has open arms. On the human side of the picture and in our work, we call this second mile parenting. Second mile parenting with adult children is different from first mile parenting that we do with our adolescents and our teenagers. Second mile parenting is what happens when our children that we sent off to college in a blaze of glory, when we sent off to work in a blaze of glory, when we sent into the military with a blaze of glory, and they come back to us hurt and broken, then we need to be second mile parents. And there is a difference. For those of you who have never had a child ski out of bounds, never had a child break the rules, you were successful first mile parents. For the rest of us, and for any of you that think that someday you may be a second mile parent, listen up. The difference between a first mile parent and a second mile parent is this. Forgiveness has consequences. There are consequences to coming back home again and being forgiven. Now, I know that some of you, <clears throat> when I started this sermon, or when you heard the scripture, said <clears throat> to yourself, why did that father give to that son the inheritance in the first place? I would have put it in a trust fund that he couldn't have touched until he was 35 years old. I would not have allowed him to waste all the efforts that I put into earning this in some silly acts.
The answer is that he needed the lesson and he paid the price for the lesson. Maturity, like salvation, is not something that we hand down. It's something that we grow into. Forgiveness and reconciliation come with a price. And now my answer to Dr. Kelly's question. It only took me 50 years. I think the next day, <clears throat> after the celebration, after the fatted calf, after the robe, I think the next day the father, the human father, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> came to his senses and he called a serious meeting with his two sons. A family meeting, not a social gathering a family meeting where they got serious about how they would handle what had been given to them, the inheritance that they had received. And they would stop the acts of entitlement going to the next generation. Critical correlation is what Paul Tilly called it. When we look to a past event and a future vision and we decide the action we need to take today to reach that vision without the blunders. How do, we <clears throat> how do we restore the trust that was broken? Once the trust is reestablished, once it is rediscovered, once it is found, it is important not to lose it again. And how do we put in place the conditions? that help our children not to go into the far country, how to learn those lessons in a better fashion. That's what we learn in these chapel messages, in these sermons, when children come to these steps, when they go over there to the Sunday school, they learn perhaps a way not to pay the price totally. The relationship between parents and children is perhaps the closest analogy we have for the relationship we have with God. Children come back to their parents seeking forgiveness as we go to God seeking forgiveness and reconciliation. In our work as parents, this parable can be both our guide and our comforter. Thanks be to God.